0: Warpick pick from the left side, and a shot that goes off the skate blade of Nielsen, and picked up by Kuznetsov, Shimera right wing corner, and now Kuznetsov right half, seven twenty to go. Kuzi with a move to the front, the shot he holds, and it's gone. Evgeny Kuznetsov, if means necessary. What a play that Kuznetsov We've talked about him a lot But one plays right there He gets a puck All the way from the corner Makes a great move
1: A little bit different Version of the Sportscasters today Don uh may work a little late a lot late uh due to the riots in baltimore uh affecting his job and we have some interviews that we really want to get out as quick as we can so what we're doing today is i'm gonna record some stuff before he gets here so that they're done and then when he gets here we're gonna put everything together and put it up and get it out as soon as we can so usually during this spot it's me talking to Don about something really clever, and then at the end of that I say, let's start the show, but uh today we're not gonna do that. We're just going to, you know, pretty much start the show, uh, without the uh the usual cleverness from me. Uh it's a good show though. Uh Chris Burke, who has taken over pretty much all of the uh draft duties at si.com is going to join us to talk about uh, the draft, obviously. Uh, His mock draft, he's got one left, which he's going to put up the day of the draft, and his current one uh, is version 6.0, so he's done six of them already. And uh, he's going to be nice enough to come in and talk to us about the draft, all kinds of things about the draft. I got a little selfish with some Saints talk during it, but they have two picks in the first round, and I am the host, and I wanted to talk about the Saints a bit. Uh, so there is that. Uh, our second interview with with Jenny Vrentas from SI. dot com. It's something we talked about last week, and Jenny wrote a cover story in SI uh, last week. Now about the Bills, about Rex Ryan, about him coming here. So it's going to be some time for Don to be a little bit of selfish. There's going to be some Bills talk. And don't make don't, don't make that seem like this is a podcast that's all about. Uh, the Bills, and the Saints, because it's not. Uh, Those are just jumping off points in the interviews. And they're both very good, and we want to get them up as soon as we can uh, because they do start to get dated come Thursday night. So what we got today is we're going to do three things. I'm going to do three things. Uh, Then we'll have an interview with Chris Burke. Uh, Then that will run right into the interview with Jenny Rentes. There's no book club this week. There's nothing in between. Chris Burke will say goodbye, the Penn State fight song will start, and next thing you know, I'll be interviewing Jenny. I don't love doing it that way, but I'm okay with it today. And then we'll end the show with uh, one last thing, uh, and our plugs and all of uh, those kinds of things. Uh, But we will still start the show, as we always do, with three things. Let's play a game. On the count of three, one. Alrighty, I'll kick it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) we just become best friends? Yep! Alright, I wanted to start, obviously, with the NHL playoffs. And we had our first game seven last night, Monday. And the uh, Capitals held the Islanders to like six shots. Uh, but due to some great goaltending by Halak, only won the game 2-1. to one. Uh, There were some times in that game where it looked like uh, they weren't going to be able to get, get out of that. That it just wasn't their night for some reason. Uh, but the Capitals did hold on to win Game 7. They're going to play the Rangers, uh, who did uh, take care of the Penguins since we last talked. Uh, we mentioned the Penguins had a puncher's chance with Crosby. Crosby was able to uh, steal them a game. Marc-Andre Fleury was very good in the series. It wasn't his fault this year. Uh, So the Rangers and the Capitals will play in the second round. Uh, The Canadians uh, and the Senators. uh, Canadians got out 3-zip. It looked like they were done. The Sens showed some fight. Uh, Anderson came in for the hamburger guy. I don't know if we'll ever hear from him again. Got two wins. And then Carey Price shut the door in Game 6. And they're going to play the winner of Game 7 of Tampa Bay and Detroit, which is uh, tomorrow. Uh, I just can't get into that series. It's just not interesting to me for some reason. I'm not sure. Uh, Calgary beat Vancouver out west. Uh, Total domination and sweep by the Ducks over the Jets. Uh, So the Ducks and the Flames will play in Round 2. And uh, uh, the Blackhawks uh, beat the Predators, as I said they would, and uh, sort of surprisingly, Minnesota and all their former Sabres were able to, uh, to beat St. Louis. So what we have is uh, the Wild versus the Blackhawks. That's a rematch from last year, and I think it's the first time ever that the Wild made it to the second round two years in a row, um, and the Ducks will play the Flames, who are only good in the third period, maybe. We'll see. How that works against a really good team like the Ducks. And like we said, we have Rangers Capitals. And Canadians waiting to find out if they play uh, the Bolts or the Wings. In the NBA, let's kind of rip it on uh, the playoffs a little bit last week. Talking about how uh, these series aren't competitive. And it's a big waste of time. And nobody is good. Nobody who's good loses to anyone who's not, and it's sort of true, uh, but it has been better the second week of the playoffs. Uh, Washington embarrassed Toronto a 5 over a 4 there. That's a sweep. Uh, Boston was no match for LeBron and Cleveland. They got swept. Uh, Brooklyn and Atlanta, this is the the outlier here. Atlanta started 2-0, then lost both games in Brooklyn, and Uh, The more you see Atlanta struggle, the more you wonder if this isn't Cleveland's conference to win. Uh, But Cleveland will play the winner of Chicago-Milwaukee. That series is 3-2. And the winner of Atlanta and Brooklyn will play a very well-rested Washington team. Uh, So that's the Eastern Conference. Uh, In the West, uh, Golden State swept New Orleans despite a really great Game 3 that I watched. Uh, I got to see a lot of that with the big comeback and the Steph Curry three-pointer. Which, it bothers me that there wasn't a foul called in the three-pointer. It was obvious that he was fouled. Uh, The refs, I guess, said they would have called it if he missed the basket. Which is insane, considering they could have lost the game in overtime. Uh, But they swapped that. Uh, Dallas uh, got a game at home. Uh, despite being down 3 nothing, they're going to see if they can extend that in Houston tonight. Uh, Houston leading 3-1. to uh, The Clippers and the Spurs is the best series as we thought it would be. They're going back and forth. Uh, that series is tied at 2. I bet that's a long one. And uh, Memphis leads Portland 3-1 to uh, and has a chance to uh, close them out tomorrow. So that's the NHL and the NBA playoffs as we are right now. Uh, midway, I guess, between the uh, first and second rounds. Third thing today is the fight of the century is on Saturday. Uh, Floyd Mayweather versus Manny Pacquiao. If Don was here, I would ask him, Don, will you watch this? I guarantee his answer would be no. Uh, For a couple reasons. One, I don't think Don, I know Don would never pay $100 for it on pay-per-view. That's one. And two, I just don't see him uh, leaving his family and leaving his house uh, very, very late on a Saturday night to watch boxing. Uh, we know at Don like sports only refers to hockey and football, anyway. Uh, so I don't, I wouldn't count him in uh, for Mayweather and Pacquiao. I will watch it, uh, and I am very conflicted on how I will watch it. Uh, I'd like to watch it in a house, uh, preferably mine, but I will not pay a hundred dollars on my own to watch it. So I need to try to get a crew together maybe. If that doesn't work, maybe someone else has got a crew together and I can kind of slide in and see it that way. Uh, Or uh, maybe I'll have to go to an establishment. The casino uh, over here, I guess, is charging a $10 cover to watch it, which isn't bad. Uh, So that's an option. And I'm sure as we get closer, more and more places will be offering it. Uh, with huge covers uh, and food limits. Actually, I heard of another place here and the way they're doing it. Dave and Buster's. Uh, there's no cover to watch it, but you do have to spend $70 for per, per person uh, on food and, and drinks and the fight. And I think it's a, it's a $70 fee, which includes like a, a buffet and a few drinks. I think non-alcoholic, though, and the fight. So it's pricey. It's going to be very pricey to watch it, which I don't think is good for boxing. Uh, I know it's free in Mexico. The whole country of Mexico is going to find a way to watch it. And uh, it's too bad they couldn't find a way to make it work by doing that here. I'm really surprised there wasn't a sponsor or a network willing to just pay a shit ton of money uh, to or a few uh, to, uh, to, to host this thing. But that's not how it works, which is why the sport is kind of in the trouble it's in. I did watch the heavyweight uh, match from Madison Square Garden on Saturday. And I was bored to death. And I'm worried about that again this week. My, I'm not a huge, huge boxing expert by any means. And I hope that Michael Woods, who's uh, an amazing boxing uh, aficionado, will be able to come on next week to break down the fight. But my guess from reading and, and watching and listening about the fight Is that if Pacquiao wins, it would probably be the more exciting fight. If Mayweather wins, it could be because he lulls Pacquiao into a coma with the rest of us. Uh, We'll see. We're going to talk a lot more uh, about this fight next week. uh, What happened. What it means for boxing. Where boxing goes from here. And uh, I hope to do it with uh, Michael Woods, who is the best uh, boxing guest there is. Alright, so... That's three things. Just to recap, we're going to take a break, interview Chris Burke. Uh, After that, you'll hear an interview with Jenny Varentez, and then I will be back uh, to close things down uh, with one last thing. Our next guest is from East Grand Rapids, Michigan, and is a graduate of the University of Michigan. He's worked as an NFL editor, blogger, and Associated Press producer for Fan House. Uh, today, he's a featured NFL blogger for Sports Illustrated.com and their de facto draft experts. He's making his 11th appearance on the podcast today. A warm sports welcome, sportscasters welcome to our loyal friend, uh, Chris Burke. What's going on, Chris?
0: 11
1: times, oh huh, man, that's pretty good. Yeah. Pe- I, like that. <laughs> I like how people are sort of, they like to know, like, okay, so where does that rank me? You know, like people uh, people take pride <laughs> in their their amount of appearances. Some people get mad, though, like someone who makes, like, making, like, their sixth or seventh appearance and they're convinced that's got to be, like, number one. And I tell them, ah, Lee Jenkins has been on 20 times. And they're like, what the fuck? You know? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
0: uh, That's what I'll shoot for, Lee Jenkins then. Always always shooting Lee Jenkins.
1: See, the thing about him is, first of all, he's such a sweet guy. And second of all, I just don't have a lot of basketball connections. So it's almost like every time I want to do a basketball spot, I just call him. And he just never (laughs) says no because he's too nice. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a pretty good guy, A <laughs> pretty good guy to have as your go to for any for basketball. Yeah, I think. mean he. Only, I only wake up on random days in the summer to find out he's the most famous sports writer in America because he broke the biggest story of the year. It's like, yeah, <laughs> that's our guy. So, and uh, you know, along those same lines, when I go to the mailbox and the Sports Illustrated draft issues in, and you're just all over the thing, I'm like, yeah, that's our guy. Like this is sweet. So, listen. It's my show. So, selfishly, the first thing we're going to talk about is the Saints because they're my team and I don't care about anyone but me. <laughs> and that's not totally fair. true. But that's fair. they're one of the more interesting teams in the draft, I think, because they have just so many picks in the first 80. I mean, was it like five in the first 80? Something like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: they're pretty loaded up. And two in the first round, obviously. And two in the, the first the round, yeah. Thing,
1: so. Now. Uh, it- in your latest mock draft, I think... Let's, let us me make sure that I'm looking at the latest one. 6.0 is the latest? I
0: think so, yeah. I mean, I'm working on my final one okay. and, uh, as we speak, but I think that's the most recent
1: one. Okay, so as the recent one, when we're talking in 6.0, and basically I think me and you agree that they're going to take, with their two first-round picks, a wide receiver and someone who can rush the quarterback. Yep. I, I think when this process started, I was convinced that they would take a defensive back at all costs in the first round. But I think the addition of Brandon Browner kind of gives them a little bit more flexibility to not have to uh, do that, especially if they're not high on taking a risk guy right away. Um, the interesting thing about them, I think, is the question at 13 is going to be, one, are one of the three top three wide receivers still available or not? And two, uh, if not, and they're going to go defense there, are they going to take a risk on one of the guys who may have fallen, who have some red flags, but if you look at the SI top 64, are much higher than a 13th uh, projection? Is that kind of what you're thinking too?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've had... I, I think Randy Gregory was my pick. If we're talking about the same, yes, we are. Yeah, that's what you uh,
1: had in this one
0: at thirteen, um, and he might slide. I guess it wouldn't surprise me if he dipped further than that. But that was sort of the line of thinking there. You know, you need a pass rusher. He's arguably the most dynamic pass rusher in this class, and you're getting you know a guy that we had number three in the SI sixty-four uh, because of just how talented he is and how versatile he is and uh, you're getting him at 13, so I think that that's the value there would be really good. I mean, today's, on uh, uh, Tuesday's um, Peter King, his mock right before the draft, he has him taking uh, Gregory at 31. Right, so and white, is there and white, <laughs> that, and white that white incredible value at 31, right. um, even with the off-field issues. I mean, you got to be comfortable that he can stay. Kind of on a straight and narrow after the the failed drug test at the combine, and you know he had marijuana usage issues in college. But from a talent perspective, uh, I mean, really for me, anything outside of the top seven or eight, Randy Gregory is a steal talent-wise.
1: See, maybe like a Warren Sapp type in this draft.
0: Um, I mean, you mean in terms of in, the, field, in, the, in terms of the talent lines? Yeah,
1: in the sense of it's like it's a it's a top three talent who doesn't get drafted yes. in the top three because of off the field issues. That
0: yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that that's I think that that's a that's probably going to be.
1: I don't know that's, why I that's of always Lawrence kind of down. the
0: example held up as a right. guy who there were tons of questions about, and then got to the league and
1: and worked out. I and, guess is why I thought and, of him. And,
0: yeah, <laughs> so I think that that's the hope. I mean, I don't know that it, it's tough because teams only have so much of a window with these guys, and that was one of the things that people talked about. You know, GMs and coaches and stuff talk about during the combine and and all those meetings is how it's tough to really get a read on these guys now because they're so well coached up for their interviews. And uh, when you have something like this, it, you know, it makes it pretty tricky. And especially because it what he can't play it off as well. I made a, a stupid mistake. One time mistake. He had a couple failed drug tests at Nebraska. He said it was a, a problem for him in college. You know, he had a really hard time, uh, not using marijuana. So, um, you got to be comfortable, but again, uh, you're talking about a class where, um, you know, John Schneider, the GM of Seahawks, said he's get, they had 16 round one grades, which is part of why they traded for Jimmy Graham, and I think that you're going to see that be a pretty common theme, that there's not a really, it's not a top-heavy class. There aren't a lot of elite guys, so when you have someone that consistently jumps off the tape like Randy Gregory does, uh, someone's going to take him. I think probably sooner rather than later once we get going.
1: You mentioned Peter King's mock with uh, uh, Gregory at 31, and it was white, I think, of the three receivers at 13. I I think I tweeted him and said I'd kiss him on the lips if that actually happened. It was those two guys (laughs) at those two spots. Uh, Jeff Duncan floated a pretty interesting thing, that if uh, Leonard Williams was at four, he thinks it might be worth it to try to move up to there to get him. Uh, Forget the Saints for a second. He's the number one guy on your uh, SI64 prospects. Uh, what is it about uh, Leonard Williams that sets him apart from everyone else that you evaluated over the course of the spring?
0: Well, I think the key, I think we mentioned in that write-up, is he's probably the safest pick going into this draft, which doesn't sound all that overwhelming if you're talking about a guy top five. But I think you look at you know, Winston, Mariota, Certainly Gregory, I mean, Vic Beasley to some extent. I mean, any of these guys, maybe outside of uh, Amari Cooper, I guess, have pretty significant questions about how their game is going to translate, how well they're going to be able to make this leap as a rookie. And I think at least on first and second downs, Leonard Williams has the potential to step in and be a dominant player. I think he can be a dominant player against the run. He's pretty raw against the pass. Uh, he's not going to be a great pass rusher right away, but I think you see the upside in him. I mean, he is just a huge guy. Um, You know, he runs 300-plus, but he moves like a tight end. So that's the type of thing when you're putting him on the defensive line. I I mean, there have been J.J. Watt comps for him, and I don't know that I necessarily buy that. But from a quickness standpoint, I mean, I think he's got the potential to be kind of in that Watt, D'Domitian Sue level in terms of creating mismatches up front with how much more effectively he moves than the people trying to block him. So uh, I feel totally comfortable with taking him top five. And I mean, I think that when you're talking about him getting to maybe four and team trading up, I, I think it'd be tough to convince Oakland to trade down because you dropped him on that line with, they're, you know, Khalil Mack last year, Sion Moore looks like he's gonna be a pretty good player. All of a sudden their front seven looks pretty good.
1: Yeah. I like I like what Oakland has kind of as a base. with another, you know, top four pick. I I think a lot of people are kind of like not as high on that coaching job as I thought they should have been. I really like what they have in, in place there. Uh I think I think they did last year was a big they weren't so much cap trouble. Now they're finally out from it. They had so much
0: money this offseason, couldn't really get guys, get the guys they want to come out there. But they're in pretty good shape from a financial and talent perspective to not push this year. but I think in the next two, three years, they could be a decent team.
1: Yeah, I think they could build something there with the kind of core they have. Um, Last year, I think, when we look back at that draft, we're going to always look at it as just this year with... It's going to be a wider... the wide receivers, I think it's the story. Like people here have been talking like we love Sammy Watkins, but do we screw up by trading this year's first round pick when we could have yeah. drafted, you know, Beckham, maybe without making a trade, they wouldn't have been able to get Evans cause he would have been gone before they picked. Uh, and I feel bad that people torture themselves like that because in the end, if they didn't trade, they probably would have taken, uh, the tight end, uh, that went to the lions. So I feel bad that people beat themselves up here. Uh, this is how things are in Buffalo. We can't enjoy a nice thing sometimes. You know, I had a really nice thing with Sammy Watkins this year, and he had a great rookie year, and people are like, oh, man, we should have just uh, just not made that trade and, and picked. But the point is, is there was just a, a shitload of good wide receivers, and it didn't have to be uh, in the top four either. I mean, there was guys picked well into the second round and third round that made impacts in the league last year. When I look at your toxic top 64 again this year, there's just a ton of them again, and I think like, as much as I want the Saints to make this huge splash at thirteen and pick one of the top three guys if they happen to fall, and I just like drool over the thought of Cooks and some other young stud and you know CJ, I just whatever. I don't want to talk too much about the Saints, but this is what's going through my head. And then I think like, well maybe let's just draft two defensive guys, make that better, and then draft a wide receiver or two after that because it just seems like there's so many. Tell me a little bit about the second-tier wide receivers. and like, I'm really curious about what you think about about Beckham, too, because this is a guy that I feel like if he would have got a waiver last year and would have played at OU, he might be a top-five pick just because he didn't get in any trouble at OU last year. Uh, so if he, if he would have played and played pretty well, which I assume he would have, I just think that he'd be a much higher pro- – he's a really interesting guy to me. But talk about the second-tier wide receivers, the guys you'd get late first round, second round, and uh, especially Beckham, who I'm curious to see what you think about.
0: Well, I, I would say if the Saints want a wide receiver, and wh- I don't think there's – I mean, I, I never want to say there's no chance because the draft is constantly a crap shoot like that where things just come out of nowhere. But I don't think there's any chance. Amari Cooper gets out of the top. I mean, at this point, I'd be surprised if he gets out of the top five. But yeah, I mean, top I've always 10, kind of ruled I don't him think out. He's there, I think right. he's gone. Yep, I agree. Um, and I, I really not to disagree with Peter King, but he had both, Kevin White and Devontae Parker available. Right at thirteen <laughs> for the Saints, Uh, I think at least one of those guys is also off the board. Whether it's because the team's right in front of them. Uh, Really starting with the, the Giants, we know uh, with Victor Cruz coming back from their injury, they picked back Odell Beckham last year. I've talked about how they would pick a wide receiver again if they thought he was the best guy. So I think the Giants, Rams, Vikings, and Browns are right before the Saints. If those both those wide receivers are there, I think at least one of them comes off the board in that stretch. So uh, the question will be if you get – one of the other guys and if they do uh, for me there's uh, i think those three clearly are the best three and i I put them cooper for me has been number one but i actually like parker more than white i think he's been number two on my board he was number three on uh the si64 and white i think was ahead of cooper but um if one of those guys is there i think the saints certainly should consider jumping because to me there's a bit of a drop off to the second tier. Not that you won't get a good wide receiver, but there's a bit of a drop-off there. Um, yeah, I mean, the second tier, the third tier, some of my favorite guys are going to be round three, round four picks, like Rashad Green from Florida State, a really solid receiver, really polished. Tyler Lockett, I think, is going to be a great slot receiver. Yeah, for I like Lockett Not a lot. Not uh, necessarily a need for the Saints, but someone's going to get a good player there. Um, yeah, Beckham's really... There are a couple wild cards, I think, in the wide receiver group. Um, Devin Smith, to me, is one from Ohio State because he has a very specific skill set uh, as a deep ball receiver that might appeal to a team in round one, but to me, he just as easily could fall to round three, and I wouldn't be that surprised. And be- Dream Beckham's the other one because, as you mentioned, when he's played, he's a dominant-type receiver six 6'5", you know he can go up and get the ball, he can win those battles over the middle um
1: yeah he was a five star number one recruit in the nation when he was going into college
0: yeah i mean he's right. he's legit, and the problem is it's not just that obviously he has a a very serious allegations of domestic violence that that cost him his uh time at college, but he also now hasn't played for it'll be you know two years. Um, by the time he gets on the field again. So um, you add that into the fact that he still needs, I think, quite a bit of a development as a route runner yeah. and, and things like that. It, it's a gamble. Um, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes round one. Uh, I personally would be hesitant to take him that high because I think it's going to be a, a longer process than you would want from a guy in round one.
1: Yeah. He's a guy... <laughs> He's a guy who just cost himself so much money in college. I mean, well, I guess it's to be determined how much he cost himself exactly, but I just always think about what if they would have granted that waiver. I I, I, I understand why they didn't. He probably didn't deserve to be granted a waiver. But, you know, I just think about him kind of. He got through the year there without any incident, without any trouble. And I don't know. He's interesting to me. He's a really interesting guy. uh, guy to me you know it's not that interesting to me for whatever reason um and we're referencing this back to the saints sometimes but it doesn't have to be necessarily about them but i don't get all that pumped up when i see victor beasley uh's name next to them and uh or bud dupree i don't know these two guys just kind of feel like picking guys to so you can pick a, a an edge rusher kind of a guy like they they don't feel like 13th overall picks to me. Tell me why I'm wrong or right about that. Well, I I think
0: I agree with you on half of those assessments. I, I I'm not totally sold uh, on Dupree, and I get why he's gotten some hype because I think he from a you know he sort of fits that prototype. He was he's six four, like almost two seventy at the combine. Um, but with the athleticism to drop back and play linebacker. So he kind of fits that prototype right now for a guy that you would want. Um, if you're, if a team plays that kind of hybrid defensive front where you want your outside linebacker to really step up and play on the line of scrimmage, I mean, he, he fits what NFL teams are looking for there physically. Um, and he has the speed to go make plays, which he does. I mean, you can pick up any, any of his games and really find, one or two plays where he just dominates. Uh but that's the problem for me too is there's only a couple of plays, you know, he's not a guy that takes over entire games.
1: He reminds um, me of the guy the Bills picked from Penn State for some reason I can't remember his name that just only does one thing really well and if for some reason doesn't translate in the NFL, he's he's painting on uh like you know, he's painting on um on uh the the show in the beginning of the year Hard Knocks and not on the field. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know, something about him scares me. I mean,
0: I I just think it's, this is, to me, one of those that's hard to get a read on before the draft, because I think we see guys like this get hyped up during the process because they're such great physical specimens, but then when teams boil it down to production and how their skill sets, where they are right now, translate, they tend to slide a little bit. So, I'm not... Convinced at the moment, there's been top ten buzz on him this week, and I don't know that I buy it. It's sort of the same thing that's going on at uh, it was the same thing that happened with Devin Smith, really, who I mentioned, and and the same thing that's going on right now with Demarius Randall with safety, who's getting bumped up over Landing Collins in a lot of drafts for some of the same reasons. I, I think teams fall in love with the you know height, weight, speed trio, and then. Circle back and and sort of second guess these things. So I don't know that he'll end up that high. To me, easily, if easily there at thirteen, I think the Saints should just sprint to the podium. Really, um, and I know that there's a, a kind of a varied opinions on him. Just you know, yesterday had the ESPN mock on TV, and and Todd McShay said several times how he's not sold on him, doesn't see the you know, speed to power conversion that he likes to talk about. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see where he exactly lands up. But for me, I think if you want um, a guy to come off the edge and be a really dangerous pass rusher for you, I mean, I think that he's there already. I think he can step in and be threaten double-digit sacks as a rookie. You know whether the rest of the game comes along, whether he can set the edge against the run, um, whether he can be effective in coverage. I mean, I I don't know that we have those answers yet, but I think at least on passing downs, you're going to get a guy who's consistent and effective through much of the year. I don't know I can say that about Dupree right now.
1: Couple more things, and I'll let you go. Who do I want Atlanta to pick? Who do you want Atlanta? as, yeah. a, as a Saints fan, yeah, who do you want Atlanta to pick? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who could they pick um, that will just totally shit themselves in the league on, for them?
0: I mean, I think you want them to pick, want them to reach on one of these pass runs. I mean, Dupree, for me, that's the one I just mentioned, I think.
1: Okay, if yeah, yeah, I'm for that. taking yeah.
0: a top-ten guy as a reach, I think Dupree there. Um, you know, Shane Ray just had an arrest, so I don't know that he's still on the table there, but I think that's another one he's been overhyped. I mean, I think that there are some pass rushers that are going to struggle, especially if there's not talent around them to take some of the focus off of them. Um, and the Saints have come a couple of those guys up front. You know, um, and someone like Dan Jordan, you have those guys that can uh, draw attention. The Falcons don't really have that. So if you drop in a, a rookie edge rusher and ask him to be your dominant defensive player, I think he's, he's going to have trouble. So, I, I mean, I think that... I, To me, I love Todd Gurley, but that's another one I've seen up that high, the Falcons going after, you know, taking a reach on on Gurley there. And that, to me, would be a really poor decision for them because of where their offensive line's at. I mean, I, I think Gurley's going to be a really good NFL running back, but even really good NFL running backs need people blocking for them, so... Um, those would be the two you know a reach on an a offensive an outside linebacker or you know a, a reach on a skill position guy yeah?
1: right I, i'm confident they'll pick a bust regardless uh marcus peters was the very first guy i asked you about in this whole process way back i don't know whenever I, the season ended probably and i was like oh we just need someone to play across from keenan lewis more than anything in the world and he's another interesting guy sort of like beckham just like kind of a disaster in college but you know on the field really good what, what do you think about what do you think his day is going to be like
0: yeah um the off-field stuff again or i mean this one i guess was sort of on field but they had the blow-ups with his assistant coaches got dismissed from washington so yeah it's another home where teams have to do a lot of digging i will say that they team's tend to have their worries eased a little bit when they get positive reports back from teammates and things like that and i think to that extent peters once this all went down with washington i think peters has done everything he needed to since then um he's still supportive of the guys that were still there uh he went back into pro day there which i think was a big thing um if if everything if it had really blown up and they're he had burned those bridges, there's no way Washington would have let him come back and do pro day. So um, I think that those worked to his benefit. I mean, to me, he's only probably the second or third best cornerback in his draft anyway. So to some extent it depends on, especially if we're talking about the Saints, do you want to go cornerback at 13? No. I mean, if he's there at 31, maybe um i mean i think you take him if he's there at 31 again that's sort of to me it's the same discussion as with randy gregory and eventually the level of risk you're taking on gets overshadowed by the potential reward and i think he's talented enough to be in round one for sure so um the top three guys in my mind weigh in um Kevin Johnson from Wake Forest, and and Peters, it's interesting because I I think they're three very different cornerbacks. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see who wants what and what exactly the Saints are looking for. I mean, if you want that physical guy that's going to come down and play the run, then you take Trey Waynes. And if you want someone who can shift back and forth between zone and man really well and is very smooth in his his, uh, plays but maybe doesn't give you as many game-changing plays, then you take Kevin Johnson. And if you want the guy who's going to take some risks and, and force some turnovers, then you take Peters. So, uh,
1: yeah, I think C for the Saints. That's but, a group. Right.
0: That's an interesting group. No. <laughs> I, I just think it's uh, – I, I think the cornerbacks could go several different ways in round one.
1: You know, one of the things that we've talked about over and over is – Alright, well what about this guy, but he's got problems. Well what about this guy, buddy's got problems? And it seems to affect all of them except for Winston, who has got problems. Yet I think I'd be more surprised if he wasn't the first pick than if and I know for sure I'd be more surprised if he wasn't the first pick than if he if he if he was. And it's really curious to me because the second guy on the SI 64 is a quarterback, who to me doesn't have a lot of problems. So, what is it about Jameis Winston uh, that his problems just seem to be bounce off of him for some reason?
0: Yeah, I mean the, the SI 64 is it, it's Doug Ferrara myself. We kind of go back and forth. We both form our lists and then compare them and contrast and then come up with where we want to put guys. And I really bang the table for Mariota over Winston. He's been my number one quarterback pretty much through this whole process with Winston number two. Um, and I get why that order would be flip-flopped, because I think the the discussions about Winston's skill set being more ready for the NFL are for the most part true. I don't think he's as You know, people talk about it like he's going to step in and and be fully confident in an NFL system um, and Mariota's going to be lost because of the system he played in in college. I don't think the gap there is nearly as big as some people make it out to be. Um, And I think the issues for Winston, beyond, you know, the the off-field stuff, obviously, and Tampa Bay has vetted him very Thoroughly, I'm sure other teams, I have Tennessee. I'm sure has gone through a lot of the same process, um, and probably some other teams below that, just in case. But uh, I think there's also some on-field stuff to be concerned with. I mean, I think that a lot of the interceptions he threw last year were because of poor choices. I think he makes some mistakes. I mean, Doug uh, in our SI64 write-up compared him to Jay Cutler, and I think there are a lot of those. I think Winston's much better in the clutch than we've seen Cutler be. Um, But from that mentality of trying to make plays out of nothing and then force yourself into turnovers, I think that Winston does a lot of those things. So I don't know that either guy is going to be that good next year. Um, I don't know. So it really comes down to which quarterback you're more comfortable with. And if Tampa Bay is more comfortable with the transition of Winston-Dupro style system, they feel good about him off the field, then by all means. Uh, that, that's, with a quarterback especially, you've got to be sold on the product you're getting because we've seen teams take quarterbacks in the top ten and then spend three to four years just going through the motions. with the, I mean, the Bills are in it right now with E.J. Manuel, on the Jets with Geno Smith. It, it right. sets you back for a while.
1: Winston just seems like a pain in the ass to me. I don't know. Do you think these two guys are going to go one and two?
0: Um, I think at this point, yes. Because I, I think Tennessee I think Tennessee's really going to have to be blown away to move out of that spot. I think it would have to be – I don't know that they need to get Phillip Rivers, but I think they'd have to get a, a bunch of draft picks to slide back. Um, so I, I think they go one, two – and a part of it circles back to what we talked about before. I just don't think there are other guys that necessarily are obvious picks there. I mean, I love Leonard Williams. I like Beasley. I like Amari Cooper. But, you know, we're, it's not like last year where you're saying clowny versus the quarterbacks. I don't think there is that defensive player necessarily right. that you have to
1: take. If one of them doesn't get two, is, is it going to be a wait?
0: I don't think it'll be that much of a wait I mean again you never really know we saw Aaron Rodgers slide we've seen guys sit there and wait forever just because uh, teams don't necessarily think they need a quarterback right this second but I I think there are enough teams um, and to me you get to probably Cleveland as the cutoff I don't know that they go to a quarterback again but you get into that range St. Louis Is another team that could go quarterback. I mean, I think there are enough teams that would be intrigued by the idea that he wouldn't sit around forever. And you still have Philadelphia out there. I mean, if Mariota slips into the 12, 13, 14 range, I don't think Chip's going up to number two to get him, but if he's in the middle of round one and sitting there, I think Philadelphia certainly could make that move. So I don't think he gets out of the top half of round one. I really think he's gone by the time the Jets pick. To I me, mean, that's sort of the basement. That's the floor. I mean, I think if he's there at 6, the Jets take him.
1: We, uh, a couple quick things, and I'll let you go. We talked a lot about the Saints because I wanted to. Uh, but forget them. <laughs> Who is there another team that kind of is going to control this draft in a way? Is there like a team that just... Kind of well. If they do this, then the draft goes this way. Or if they do this, it goes this way. Is there kind of like going to be someone driving this thing, or or no? I think it's Jacksonville, Jacksonville? at three. Okay, um,
0: because I think Tampa Bay, as you said, if Tampa Bay doesn't take Winston right now, I think it'd be pretty shocking. Um, so you almost just you almost lock that one in, and I think more and more signs are pointing to Mariota too, So. Then you get to three, and Jacksonville could go really any any other available direction there and and justify it. so it, you really can't get a feel for who it might be there. I think I think we have a handful of potential guys, but I think they could go any number of ways and then that in turn you know you leave Oakland with a different set of choices and we're also gonna see. If Mariota's still there at three, Jacksonville could fly back. Uh, I think they could fly back if the team, falls in love with Cooper, um, you know Dante Fowler, Beasley. I mean, there are guys that I think will entice teams to come trade up. So Jacksonville's going to hold a lot of cards, assuming one two fall the way that we think they will.
1: Jacksonville's sort of like the Raiders, where I kind of like like what they have as a base, and I feel like you're adding another top. Four pick or top three pick there that you know, like maybe they're a team in the right direction. I like their coach too. There's some things I like about Jacksonville and the Raiders for some insane reason. Uh, Chris Burke uh, writes for Sports Illustrated and uh, Sports Illustrated dot com. He's at Chris Burke underscore si on Twitter. What are you doing on draft night? What, you gonna do a <laughs> blog or like what? What are your plans for this uh, draft uh, extravaganza?
0: Uh, well, we have our la- our everyone on on staff more or less does a mock draft in the morning which will carry us into the thing and then uh, that night Doug and I kind of alternate uh, grading immediately grading the picks and uh, then we set up round two once it's over for the next day and sort of do the same thing uh, on Friday breaking down some of the bigger picks and then into Saturday and uh, then go through with our and a final thoughts Saturday, Sunday. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty hectic weekend. I think we'll have some video stuff this week too, uh, uh, which we haven't necessarily done as much of in the past. So it's, uh, it, it'll be a fun weekend. It's always kind of a crazy weekend. We have a team, team of video people down in Chicago. We got a team of video people in New York and then Doug and myself at our home bases. So, uh, <laughs> hopefully you guys, you can, you can, uh, get through the autoplay videos and and, uh,
1: (laughs) read some of the stuff. Very very last thing, and we'll let you go on this. Uh, It's been all about me, which is the way it should be, but I do have a partner who's a big Bills fan, and he's talked a lot about how hard it is to get excited for this draft because it feels like his team really isn't playing in it. Uh, I don't think they picked till 50. Um, What would you tell him is a way to be excited about this draft? Is there... A guy that he could hope for around fifty. Is, <laughs> is there any yeah. that they might try to trade? I mean, is there any? Is there anything you could say to him to say, "Hey, champ, it's it's all right. It's going to be a really great night on on Thursday or Friday or whenever the Bills finally get around to making a pick." Yeah, I mean,
0: Thursday's probably going to be rough. Oh. <laughs> Friday, Saturday. I, the good thing about this draft, I think, for the Bills and for any other team that's uh, in need of. Either multiple guys or doesn't feel great about their spot in round one is it is. I think we're going to get in around even in the round four and five and have starter caliber players. So um, if a team is is comfortable with the board and drafts well, I think you're still going to see uh, still going to see some impact guys, and we saw that last year. And I mean, it happens every year, but especially last year I think was a really good draft in terms of finding guys in the mid to late rounds who could step in and start and step in and contribute. And I think, uh, there will be some of those, those guys again. So, um,
1: and, hey, it, you and know, it, it's you're... a long
0: wait, it's a really long wait <laughs> to 50, but I mean, you look back at last year and Carlos Hyde was 57, um, you know, Devontae Adams was right in that range. Uh, round three had some, Preston Brown was the Bills' round three pick last year and probably going to start this year, so there certainly will be some guys there, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see any way they trade up into round one unless you know, Mar- Mariota's there at 31. <laughs> <laughs> they can go get him, but uh, I doubt that happens.
1: And hey, like you said, if they're confident in their draft board and And draft ball, I mean, no team over the last 16 years has proven to be more effective uh, in the draft than the Bills, for sure. I mean, they just, they kill it year after year after year, which is why they've had so many playoff appearances in that stretch, for sure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I I think the good news for them is that, other than the depth of this draft, is that, they're not in as bad a shape as they have been that's in the true. past that's true so um
1: i told them to I, just I think watch
0: feel pretty good about what they have in place already but uh, yeah i mean to sit out round 1 uh especially when you're a team that ha- it's different for seattle to sit out round 1 than it is for for buffalo to sit out round 1
1: right cuz their first round pick is jimmy Graham. so
0: and yeah right and i mean they also had that success. you know that they're going to be pretty good regardless I think so right. uh, the bills are still trying to climb that mountain, which makes it a little tougher to skip round one. But uh, I mean, if Sammy Wat- I, I don't think we can judge Sammy Watkins fully on what happened last year either, or comparing him to Beck Odell Beckham. I mean, I think, I think you got to get the quarterback situation a little more settled and the offense a little more settled. And we'll see what Sammy Watkins can do. It wouldn't surprise me if he still turns out to be, you know, the best Top two, three wide receiver out of that class.
1: Yeah. It's just that if he's, you know, let's say he's Julio Jones, like he's that good. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) How, how bad does Beckham need to be to think, wow, they made a great trade? Well, that's like you said. It's sort of I, tough to sit there yeah, it's and do not Yeah, it's not nice. I don't, yeah, think, nice. I, I don't okay. think Beckham probably wouldn't have been goes there, into guys.
0: Buffalo and played that well either. I mean, Beckham sure. had Eli Manning and the right. perfect offense for
1: his skill set. So that's kind of the tough thing about. I'm being mean. I'm, I was just playing mean. the if what yeah. if game. The was, what if game's always there. I was being mean and I'm sure that Sammy Watkins watching himself on the JumboTron and getting caught from behind against the Jets is a one-time thing. They so don't have to worry about that ever happening again. So, uh, you know, I was just teasing a little bit. All right, Chris. Uh thank you for talking for so long. It's probably longer than you wanted to. Uh, but I appreciate that and uh hope you get to have some fun uh with all this draft stuff. You're killing it. Um love it love all the all the work that you do really excited to uh, be able to share this with our listeners and uh, thanks as always for all 11 glorious appearances you've made on the show
0: (laughs) yeah I look forward to number 12 thanks for having me again
1: Our next guest is currently in New York City and is a graduate of Penn State. Spent six years at the Star-Ledger before becoming one of the first staff members at Peter King's Monday Morning Quarterback. She's making her third appearance on the podcast today, a warm sportscaster's welcome to Jenny Vrentis. What's going on, Jenny? Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Not too bad. Did you enjoy your time in Buffalo? Oh,
2: yeah. I I, I loved it. I I really like it up there. You know, the weather could have been a little bit better. I went in early April, so it was a little chilly. But um, I I find uh, the people in Buffalo are just so nice, and the the fans love their team so much that you can really just see how ingrained the Bills are into the community. So um, I always enjoy visiting.
1: I'm not sure if... As many people as should read the magazine on the iPad, but I do. And there was a really fantastic uh, digital bonus in your Bill's cover story that you did uh, with you and Rex and Thurman and Jim Kelly at the um, Big Tree. And, yep, the uh, Big Tree, yep. Yeah, just a really, looked like a really cool atmosphere. A lot of people there. Um, I gotta tell you, though, the Big Tree, ugh. I only think the 90 Bills like it. <laughs> well, they, uh, the reason we, we picked it, because it's
2: right around the corner from the stadium, and uh, uh, Rex had his first year in Buffalo as a Bills head coach there with Jim Talley, so... I thought it was an appropriate place to go since that was where they shared their first beer together. Um, I like it. I I went there after a Bills game last year, uh the game at when the Pagoulas first bought the team. So right. it was a great atmosphere in Buffalo that day. So just seemed to me to be such a such a um a place that's representative of the Bills and Bills fans and a place where Rex fits right in, too. I know he goes there on his own uh, with his wife sometimes
1: or he's brought his son there. I think he watched the Pro Bowl from the Big Tree Inn, so it's definitely part of his uh, rotation. Danny's across the street, tad better, but uh, I noticed uh, I noticed that you had Jim looked like he had eaten his wings and Rex and Thurman. I noticed the ones closest to you were just a full plate.
2: Yeah, you know, I have some food allergies, so I was a little hesitant to, to try the wings. I had, um one or two of the, the honey version, I think, because they weren't breaded, but I think the other version, um had batter on it. Oh and I no, they, gluten,
1: serve, so. they, they serve, they yeah. serve breaded wings there? Are you serious? Oh god. I,
2: well, you know what, I couldn't be sure. I didn't ask, and I didn't want to be rude, so I waited till it looked like, uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But um yeah, I'm I'm allergic to gluten, so I have to be a little wary of what I eat.
1: We gotta get you some real chicken wings sometime when you come <laughs> in here. Uh, anyway, it was really cool. It looked like there was a lot of people there to enjoy it. Um, really cool kind of added thing, which is one of the reasons I love reading the magazine on the iPad. But uh I'm always curious, like, when you decided to do this and you came out to do it. I'm sure you had a specific sort of story in line. Uh, and when you got here, I always wondered, did it change at all? Did it kind of, was it kind of what you thought or did you, did you find something different?
2: Well, I, you know, we went into the story wanting to write about, you know, Rex's fresh start in Buffalo. So I kind of didn't know what direction that would take. Um, I knew that he had already kind of ingratiated himself with the community and had already you know, with his Bill's truck and going to a lot of the local restaurants around Orchard Park. And he had a, I, he had a Tim Hortons he went to every morning. So I, I knew that, you know, there was going to be a lot of people in the community that already felt like they connected with him. So I did a little bit of that reporting before I went up there. But part of the reason Rex is in Buffalo, obviously, is because things didn't work out in New York. And having covered him in New York sort of before... Um, covered him in 2010 and 2011 um right up to the 2012 season so that was sort of before things really started to slide there and but I, I i knew that um you know part of the story there had been untold as well um so once i when i spoke to him um you know we talked a lot about buffalo and his fresh start and that was obviously going to be a big part of the story but i didn't know if he'd be willing to rehash some of the jet stuff and um he was so i think that ultimately became a big part of the story too, sort of the way things ended and, and his side of the way things ended, which he hadn't really talked a lot about before we spoke. So I think he kind of gave his perspective on, on why things ended in New York. He felt like some power was taken away from him. He didn't have the roster he needed at the end of his Jets tenure, so much so that before the 2014 season, he. Figure he would probably be fired in new york so he bought a house in nashville so that he would have a home base right uh somewhere to go to after he got fired so that stuff to me I, I didn't know that stuff that was surprising to me so that did sort of you know i knew there was i knew there was a story that to be told with that i just didn't know exactly what he would say or, or all the details of it so that was a little surprising
1: you mentioned that for him to be here it didn't It had to not work out in New York. I think there was two other key things that had to happen, too. One was obviously that Marone had to quit because it didn't look like they were going to fire him at that point. Right. And the other thing is is we need Pagula to be here because this is a hire that the Bills have never made historically. And I noticed that when you brought up kind of the Marone situation, you could tell that Kelly and Thurman were, were not very happy about that. Did you get a little insight from them about those other two things, Marone quitting and uh, Pagula being here and how that affected the hiring and getting a name like Rex Ryan at uh, the price that they spent to get him?
2: Yeah, I think you know the Pagulas were definitely a big factor in Rex going to New York because um, he wanted to go to a a team where he felt like he was comfortable being himself, that they really wanted him. And I think the Pagulas definitely led the charge um, in terms of you know, making it known that that he would be their guy and that he was someone that they wanted, and and he could they wanted him for all the things that that Rex Ryan brings to a team. You know, um, I think in, in terms of Doug Marone leaving, yeah, Thurman Thomas really didn't pull any punches. Um, he was expressing that you know he didn't like being around the team as much when Doug Marone was coach. Obviously, that's one person's opinion, right? Um, But it's an important one because I think Thurman's around the team a lot. He has relationships with a lot of the players. So I think it's sort of based on firsthand knowledge, and I think he's also kind of an influence on on the organization. So I think his opinion is an important one. And he just – I think he – you know, they're obviously completely different approaches. Doug Marone's very buttoned up. And after a 9-7 season last year, you know, they – they would have moved forward with him. That was a plan that he was going to be the coach. And then all of a sudden they're scrambling and finding a new coach. Um, And I think you certainly do see a lot of when one coach leaves and a new one comes in and they're 180 degrees different in personality, you know, obviously certain things come out. um, They're behind the new coach and they don't like the old coach. I think that's natural. That happens everywhere. It's certainly happening in New York with the other way with Todd Bowles coming after Rex Ryan. But um, I think some of Thurman's points out were, or valid. He said he was stealing them even during last season. So um, I think it was interesting, and Rex has really made an effort to embrace those guys, which I think has helped him kind of fit into the community too.
1: You know, obviously when you go from New York City and you come to Buffalo, it's going to be different. And yeah. one thing I was thinking about that is going to be very different is uh, the relationship that Rex has with the media and I was thinking about it because, I mean, New York is a very unique media, for one. I mean, you know, anywhere you go besides New York, there's going to be some – it's going to be different. But I was even thinking about, like, radio. You know, the number one radio station in New York, WFAN, and especially the number one show and the Mike Francesca Show, and the Jets have historically awful relationships. You know, the only sports radio station here, WGR, is the flagship of the Bills Radio Network, uh they have a show uh every night. I think you were even on it. Um Yeah, the John Murphy
2: show. The John show, Murphy yeah. show,
1: which is it's a commercial. I mean John Murphy's a a good guy and you know I don't mean that as a put down, but I mean it you're not gonna tune in there and, and hear much uh critical, you know, of the team. That and they have one for the Sabres as well during the day, which it's the same thing. A two hour show uh that's essentially uh you know, so it, my point isn't to, to, to say anything mean on, on Murphy's show because it's actually a good show. But uh, wow, what a difference, right? I mean, to go from the relationship in New York that the Jets have with their uh, number one sports radio station and the relationship that the Bills have uh, with the number, number one sports radio station here.
2: Well, I don't. I don't know a lot about the the talk radio dynamics. I certainly enjoyed being on John's show. So, um, but I think yeah, just overall show. the media. Yeah, the, I think the media environment is is certainly different. I mean, I think that even the Jets beat compared to the Giants beat um, for probably a lot of different reasons. But the Jets beat is uh, much much tougher on on the Jets, I think, than the Giants are. I've covered both teams. I've been on both beats, so I've seen it firsthand. So, um, you know, it's. It's, it's, it's a cutthroat atmosphere media wise, um, both from a person in the media and then for the people that you're covering. So going to Buffalo, and obviously there's, there's great reporting in Buffalo. I think the guys at you know, the Buffalo News, for instance, do a fantastic job covering the team. So it's just there aren't as many media members. Right. Um, it's not as much of a, I think when things would happen in New York, it became a circus because you would have the attention of the, the biggest market um, and you would have, you know, you could have hundreds of reporters there on any given day. So, you know, it's it's definitely, they're out of the pressure cooker a little bit. The Jets, um, for a long time in New York, have, you know, in comparison the Giants, have not won Super Bowls, obviously. So it's a much, they have a much, uh, they have much less goodwill built up uh, in the media and with the fan base. And, you know, so it's just, it, it, when you're the Jets head coach, you face a lot of scrutiny. That is a tough job to have. Rex says you know he feels like he can breathe in Buffalo I think that's for a lot of reasons but um and you know he's got a win obviously we'll see what his record is and that obviously plays a role into how you're treated because Rex was certainly the toast of the town when he took the team to AFC championship games but yeah it's 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 always different when you go from New York to another market it just always is
1: you know if there was one thing that people were a little bit the, the the response to hiring Rex was overwhelmingly positive. The one thing you sometimes heard was, well, you know, he made a defensive coordinator change. He's a defensive co- coach. The defense is great last year. It was the offense that was a problem, really. How do we get better with Rex as coach? Because, of course, the defense is going to be good, but can it really be any better than it was? And can he really help us on offense? Uh, what is his plan to uh, to help? The, you wrote a little bit in the column about uh, the offensive coordinator he brought in and, and kind of how important that was.
2: Right. I think that's a really fair point. The defense wasn't broken last year, so now you're bringing a defensive-minded head coach. So I asked Doug Whaley that, you know you know, why, why did you make that move? Why weren't you looking for an offensive guy? And he just felt like it's about the personality of the team as a whole. Um, Rex wants to build his team sort of like those early teams he had in New York where you have a really tough defense and a really strong ground game, kind of an all-weather offense. In New York, I don't think Rex ever had an offensive coordinator where the relationship worked tremendously well. I think he, he started off with Brian Schottenheimer who was, Um, had been there under the previous regime. And then they went to Tony Sperano, and that was the Tebow year. And then he hired Marty Morning who's definitely kind of the opposite of a ground-and-pound guy. So I think in Greg Roman, he finally has kind of a like-minded guy. Um, They seem to be on the same page, and that really isn't something he ever had in New York. So I think that's one big difference. I think, too, you know, when you don't have a franchise quarterback, um, you know, what what Greg Roman said, like, what kind of offense – are you going to run? Like, tell me another offensive style. You know, you talk about West Coast. Well, you don't have someone like Brett Favre. You know, you talk about all these other styles. You don't necessarily have a quarterback to run it. So, in a lot of ways, where the Bills are at right now, where they're based geographically, you know, the and the ground and pound run first offense is a great idea. And people will say, "Can that work in today's NFL?" But the reality is, that it's like what the Seahawks do. You know, that's that's how it's. You know, the 49ers and the Seahawks and the NFC West, when they're at their both teams are at their best. It's with a strong running game, a very physical offense, and then other stuff opens up off of that, and then you have a tough defense. So that's always how Rex has envisioned his teams, and I think that's what he wants the Bills to be this year.
1: You know, we know the Bills don't have a first round pick this year. Do you get any sense from uh, Rex and Roman uh, where they stand? in terms of the first round pick from a few years ago and E.J. Manuel, Is this a guy you get this? I know they haven't had much time yet. And I would, I'm guessing they'd probably defer to that, but do you get the sense that they've seen something on film that makes them think it's, it's still worth trying to resurrect that pick or uh, did you get a different sense?
2: Well, yeah, they haven't given up on him for sure. I mean, I think they do intend for it to be a competition, you know, Castle, Manuel, and and even Tyrod Taylor. Um, I I think Castle, if I had to put my money on who will be the quarterback opening day, I'd put my money on Castle, but um, I did not get the sense they've written off E.J. Manuel, no.
1: Yeah, and that's really interesting because, I mean, the last staff certainly had. Right. You know what I mean? They, They were certainly done with that guy for sure. Uh, at least that was the sense around town. That was my feeling. I don't know if you got a different one. But to me, as long as uh Marone was gonna be here, I didn't really think that Manuel would get a chance to be quarterback. And maybe this is uh maybe this is a new opportunity and and, and through the summer and he can maybe uh maybe get a shot because they did use it. what well, was he the twelfth pick I think and I don't even think he's played sixteen games yet. So I, I don't know.
2: Yeah yeah, I mean, I think that that's the I and what you just said there is sort of the biggest limiting factor in evaluating him is that he doesn't have a ton of game game experience. They haven't seen a, a ton on him yet, and they don't know him very well yet. They, the week that I was up there was the very first week of the off season program, and until that point, you're not allowed to have contact with the players. Right. So, any projections right now? I mean, I, I kept asking coaches, "Give me an idea what the offense will look like," and they're like it. You know, the main point that they were saying is just it's so early. We don't know yet. We don't know our players that well. I mean, no, they haven't given up on EJ, but, you know, there's a long way to go between now and the season. They have a lot of things to figure out. Um, you know, I think the only thing you can be sure of right now is that there will be a, a quarterback competition of some, um, of some fashion. And I think Greg Roman, one thing he did really well in, San Francisco was sort of managing the quarterback situation. You know, he started with Alex Smith, Smith who was a cast off and not a cast off, but a lot of people had figured, you know, there was nothing left with him. And then behind him, he helped develop Colin Kaepernick to seamlessly step in when Smith got hurt. So right. I think that was an appeal in hiring Greg Roman as well. His ability to have managed a, a somewhat complicated situation in the past.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that uh, game that Alex Smith played against the Saints in the playoffs, uh, at the time, I don't think there was a person in America who would have thought he was capable of that game at that point. You know, And to see him play as well as he did that day, that was an epic playoff game. I mean, that was one of the the best playoff games in a long time. I don't know why it gets overlooked a little bit at times. Maybe because it was only a division round game. But, uh, I mean, there was like three or four lead changes in the last five minute, minutes. And uh, it seemed like a few times in that game, Drew Brees had just gotten the best of Alex Smith, and that should have been what we expected. And uh, man, I, I you got to give uh, give Roman a lot of credit for having him in, in a position to be that good on that day. I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know that's what you talk about when you 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 take the cards that you have, you accentuate their strengths, you minimize their weaknesses, you you build an offense that. Suits them rather than building an offense that you you know you want to showcase yourself as a innovative offensive coordinator or you want to prove that you know you're you're drawing up all these crazy schemes and simplest is always better right just kind of take what you're given and and make it work the best way possible um i think roman has done that in the past so um i'm interested to see how he, he does that in buffalo
1: Last thing about the Bills that I want to ask you two quick things about the draft, and I'll let you go. Uh, Have you gotten any sense, either through this story or maybe another, or just being around the league, how the Pagoulas are fitting in as owners? Uh, We know that they're heroes here in Buffalo, and they fit in great in that sense. They're obviously already pretty entrenched in the community, being the owners of the Sabres and now the Bills. And the idea of one Buffalo has been a huge hit And uh, if you walk around downtown now, compared to five years ago, you see what that Pagula money can do, and it just makes you so grateful that they uh, found their way into our community. But what about within the league? I mean, we know that at times there's owners that kind of emerge themselves as the power owners, the Jerry Jones, the Kraft. Uh, Pagula has the money like those guys. He might not have the market, but what is the sense you get as him fitting in as an owner, if any? Because I know that's not what you wrote about, but I was just curious if you got a sense of that in any way, at any point.
2: Well, I was there at the owners meeting um, last fall when they were confirmed, and certainly there was excitement over, you know, they were unanimously confirmed. I think a lot of people thought that they were a great match. They were, you know, respectful to Wilson's legacy. They were going to keep the team in Buffalo. They have the Sabres as well. So in a lot of ways, they were kind of an ideal ownership group. I think they're... It, it, you know, Pugula, Terry Bagula is a pretty quiet guy. I think. Um, I think it's hard to know exactly what their ownership style is going to be like in the NFL because you know it hasn't been very long yet. But I think their confirmation as to become the new owners of the Bills was really met with great excitement and, and sort of relief that they had found a, a, a match like like them for the for the team and and for the community.
1: Yeah, I know the second that he walked into the community too own the sabers there was a thought like this has got to be the guy you know if if there's a chance for this team to be here long term that's the guy you know like that it's got to yeah. be him and and to think that it worked out again i mean things like that just don't seem to happen to buffalo at least that's the perception you know and that's the attitude around here a lot too you know uh just the other night when uh, the sabers didn't win the draft lottery you know, despite the fact that we cheered here like uh crazy people all year for them to finish 30th, so even if they lost that lottery, uh they'd be able to get the second pick. There's still those moments of like, "Oh man, we're such losers." You know, but guys like uh, Pagula are really important to I think uh, maybe changing that. And uh yeah. 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 Um real quick, uh I asked you uh real quick before we started about uh the draft this week. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Monday Morning Quarterback's role is going to be in covering the draft and kind of what you're looking forward to uh, checking out when you get into Chicago, what things you're interested in seeing play out in this year's draft?
2: Yeah, I think we're going to have a couple of live draft shows, I think, Thursday and then Friday afternoon or evening before the draft from Chicago. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the draft, now in a different venue. I know they're, they're changing up the way, um, they've done some things in the past. I think they want to try to make this year's draft a little different in terms of presentation, um, and, you know, kind of a new city. So quite, sort of a new field to it. Obviously the two quarterbacks, Mariota and Winston are, are not going to be there. So I right. think the the production value to them has become pretty important. Um, I think the one, um, thing that will probably stand out a lot is, you know, I think Roger Goodell is going to have a face a very tough reception from fans, obviously with the year that the NFL's coming off of twenty fourteen with the spotlight on domestic violence and sexual assault, um and, and the criticism of the way the NFL handled it, I think Goodell will, will certainly face um you He know, often, the past few years, has gotten booed when he stood up in front of the draft. I think this year will probably be the worst year yet. Um, so <laughs> he's
1: going to have to get that, used to that. Um, what's that? I said he's going to have to get used to that. You know, Gary You're right. Gary Bettman has gotten used to that in the NHL. I mean, he, he doesn't show his face anywhere without a boo, and I think uh, Goodell's going to have to get used to that, too.
2: Yeah, so I, I think that'll be pretty significant. I think that'll definitely stand out on the first night.
1: There's a couple guys in this year's draft more than uh, more than I can remember recently who are kind of like elite talents. Like you see them two or three on boards, but then when it gets time to do mock drafts, you see them drafted in the 20s, you know, 30s. There's some guys with risk out there this year. Do you think uh, ultimate? Do you think that uh, that because of those things you mentioned, the things that the NFL has gone through in the last year that these red flags that we always hear about uh, that those are costing guys even more this year than in the past. You think there's oh, a relationship there? Yeah, I mean,
2: yeah, it's hard to say that's going to be the case if uh, Jameis Winston goes number one overall. That's I mean,
1: right. That yeah, quarterbacks might might tra- uh, transcend that. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just. You know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, certainly with how the off the field discipline has um, become strengthened and you see um, longer and, and more appropriate suspensions for, for guys with off the field incidents. You think, hey, teams drafting a player have to consider if, if this guy has had issues in the past and he messes up again, he can miss, you know, a significant part of a season, perhaps an entire season. I think having that happen to stars like Adrian Peterson or Greg Hardy is. You know, certainly in some ways, reinforce that it can happen, but then I just think it's so hard to yeah. talk about character concerns being being an issue when, or character concerns um, affecting draft stock significantly if, if, if Jameis Winston goes number one overall.
1: Aside, I kinda of snuck in an auto uh, an auto video on us there. I was bringing up, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, you know, I wonder. Obviously, someone like a quarterback like Winston. Might be able to transcend that. It'll be really interesting what happens to a guy like Randy Gregory. You know, uh, d- a defensive uh, player who's obviously very high on a lot, almost every uh, list of drafts, but not necessarily always in mocks. You know, will he slip past a team like the Saints, for instance, if he if he made it that far? Um, and I think uh, DGB is one of the most fascinating players in the entire draft, too. Cause he might be the most talented wide receiver in the draft and who knows and we'll hear his name, you know? So,
2: right. Right. Yeah. That's certainly, I think it's, it's, it's challenging for teams to weigh those factors. Um, and I think just the world that we're living in, I think talent still does for the most part, um, Trump or at least lessen significantly, um, the, the impact of
1: those. Well, you can, uh, Read the article that we talked mostly about by Jenny uh, in the uh, current issue of Sports Illustrated. It's a double issue. It's got all kinds of good draft stuff in there as well. Our friend Chris Burke has his uh, mock draft in there. All kinds of great information. Uh, the current issue, the Sports Illustrated. Uh, you can also read her on Monday Morning Quarterback, the Monday Morning Uh And uh, you can find her on Twitter. What's your Twitter again, Jenny?
2: Uh, Jenny Brentis, just J-E-N-N-Y, V as in Victor, R-E-N-T-A-S.
1: Anything else you want to uh, let everyone know about before we let you go?
2: No, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed Buffalo. we got to get you some better chicken wings next time you're here. No,
2: no, I, I was not an indictment on their chicken wings <laughs> at all. I was an indictment on my own allergies. So.
1: Well, as, uh, as someone who lives with Crohn's, I know it can be... Uh, you, you get nervous when you're out you, when you don't have complete control of the food you're like i, I don't know you know so i yeah. certainly understand but uh thank you very much <laughs> uh, for the time and uh have fun in chicago at the draft and uh look forward to talking to you soon sounds good
2: thank you so much
1: All right, I have to thank Chris Burke and Jenny Vrentes for being on the podcast today. always appreciate that. You can listen to this week's podcast, last week's, and any week's on our website, www.sports-casters.com. Uh, last week we had uh, Jeff Passon and Will Leach on. Uh, didn't have that one up uh, as a, the top page for as long because we wanted to get this one up. Uh, but there's some great stuff on there. Definitely uh, suggest checking that out. You can email us, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters. And Don is at at Don sports. Uh So I think that's uh, all for the plugs uh, this week. Uh, like I said, um, missed Don today. But we wanted to get this up as quick as we could. Uh, but I will leave you with one last thing. Uh, it is currently... Uh, April 28th, and on May 4th, uh, I have a nephew due. My brother's uh, wife is finally giving birth to uh, their son, Gregory the Third, and everyone in the family is very excited uh, for Gregory to uh, arrive. And the interesting thing about today and yesterday and tomorrow, really, is that we're kind of to the point where Gregory could arrive, you know, Any time. And that's sort of weird. They give you this due date. And I think when you're six or seven months away, you just kind of figure, all right, well, he'll come on the due date. Uh, But the reality is he'll come when he's ready. And uh, that might be today or tomorrow uh, or the fourth or sometime after that. Uh, And that has got to be brutal for my brother, Greg, and uh, my sister-in-law, Laura. So I know how excited I am. I can't imagine how excited they are. And it's got to be a long, a long wait. Uh, But I'll be back next week uh, with the very exciting news uh, about what it was like to meet and hold my nephew for the very first time.